guys, welcome to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick Podcast. I'm Nina Spears, the Baby Chick, your host, and today we have Dr. Mona joining us again on our show. If you didn't hear our last episode with Dr. Mona, she is currently a practicing pediatrician where she sees babies and moms of every ethnicity and social circumstance. She created Pete's Doc Talk and shares smart, helpful advice to make the motherhood journey a little easier and has built an inclusive community of over 280,000 fans and followers across her different platforms. She definitely knows her stuff and we are excited to have her back. Today, we'll be chatting with Dr. Mona about common health issues that arise during summer. Dr. Mona will share her firsthand experience with these issues as a pediatrician and how to treat them. So let's dive in. Hi, Dr. Mona. It is so wonderful to have you back on our show. Nice to be back on and chat with you today. Thank you. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. It's like officially springtime and with spring in full swing, summer is quickly approaching. We are interested in chatting with you about how we can keep our kids healthy and happy during these seasons. So Dr. Mona, we want to know that you know each season comes with its own health challenges for our children. Can you share some common issues that arise during the summertime that parents need to be mindful of? Yeah, so I love this time of year. Spring, summer is amazing, especially for our friends and family in winter locations. You can finally get outside. But when you get outside, that can mean allergies in the springtime and even the summertime. Bug bites obviously are a huge reality. And then sometimes we see just some general rashes and eczema flare-ups for children who may be more prone to flare-ups in warmer weather. And then, of course, sun safety, keeping our kids safe in the sun. I live in South Florida where we have sun year-round, and I know the benefits of sun, but I also know that we want to keep our kids safe from harmful UV rays, but still get to enjoy water, surf, and everything that comes with it. Oh, for sure. And like you said, it's a fun time, but there are definitely things that we need to be mindful of. And gosh, I just feel like I hear, oh, I have allergies. I have allergies. It is definitely that allergy season. It's a common phrase. Dr. Mona, what are like some common symptoms of allergies in babies and children? And what can parents do to help treat those allergies? Well, I love that you asked about babies and children because it's a common common question and misconception that babies can get seasonal allergies and they can't. So the earliest we see seasonal allergies would be 18 months. And why that is, is because in order to develop allergies, your body has to be exposed to an allergen decide that it doesn't like that allergen, and then mount an immune response, which is why we see allergy symptoms. So a baby hasn't been around the allergens. Let's use pollen as an example, right? They haven't really been around the pollen, so maybe they're around it in their first year of life, and then in their second year of life, their body, everyone's different, realizes, hmm, I don't really like pollen, and that's when you start to see those allergy symptoms, which we'll get into. So the earliest we'll see it is 18 months. And common symptoms are itchy, runny nose. So it just feels like you're constantly sneezing or maybe like, you know, the child may be rubbing their nose a lot, coughing or maybe clearing of the throat. So these are common things, itchy eyes, watery eyes, and it's different than a virus. Viruses can have sometimes fever. The child just seems a lot more unwell with the virus. With allergies, the child is still able to do their activities, but they're just sniffling, sniffling. And the itchiness is a huge differentiation between it being a virus versus it being allergies for the most part. And so this is the common age that we see it over 18 months. Usually I see it three years and up, 
And that is what we see with the symptoms. That is so reassuring for me because my son, oh my gosh, you said pollen. I'm like, yep, he has an allergic reaction to pollen. And every year around this time, his eyes swell up. He just is all congested, poor guy. And now my daughter who just turned two, she has food allergies. She has bad eczema and I'm pretty sure she's going to have asthma and some other seasonal allergies. So I'm like, okay, Dr. Mona, I need to know like, what can we do to help treat these allergies when we do start noticing them at around, like you said, that as early as 18 months, but typically around three years old, what can we do? Yeah. And I love also that you mentioned the combination of different things. You mentioned eczema, seasonal allergies, and asthma actually come together in some children. And it's called the atopic triad. And what that means is usually in infancy, you may see a child with eczema. It doesn't mean they automatically get seasonal allergies and automatically get asthma, but there is an increased risk because these are a family of conditions that have to do with a overactive immune system, if you will. The immune system in this person has decided I don't like you. I don't like this. I'm going to mount a response. And it can be really hard. So a lot of love to you because I know, you know, you see these symptoms and your child's uncomfortable. And so how can we help these children? So like I said, if your child is over 18 months, you'd want to clear it with your child's clinician that this is in fact what we're dealing with, especially if it's the first time you're ever dealing with seasonal allergies just to make sure we're dealing with the right thing, you're getting the right medication regimen. And over two years of age, we have a lot of different medications that can be used, which are not approved for children under two. So over two, we have antihistamines, and these are going to be your common liquid medicines for children like Zyrtec, Claritin, Allegra. Those are your very common ones that you probably maybe even use for your children, Nina, but they're very common and they help reduce that histamine response. And that histamine response is what's causing the itchy, puffy eyes, the swollen eyes, the irritation, the itching, and that can help quell those symptoms. And then for children who are experiencing nasal symptoms, there is a nasal steroid spray that is usually recommended. And again, this is cleared by your clinician over the age of two. And it's a very safe daily medication that's inserted in the nose like a spray. And this can help alleviate the nasal symptoms, also sometimes even the eye symptoms that children have because everything's connected. And then we have eye drops, which are antihistamine eye drops. And these are things like Zatador, Patidae, again, all things that you discuss with your clinician of, does my child need just the nasal spray? Do they need nasal spray plus antihistamine like Zyrtec? Do they need nasal spray, antihistamine, eye drop? It all just depends on what symptoms the child is having, because our goal is to help treat the symptoms that are causing discomfort. If a child is having seasonal allergies, but wakes up, rubs their eyes, goes on with their day, not super bothered, we don't really need to treat it. We treat symptomatically, right? We don't want our kids rubbing and digging and feeling miserable. And so that's why these medications are there to kind of come up with what I call a allergy action plan. What are we going to take? When are we going to start it? When are we going to decide that we need to switch things off? And this is why it's sometimes very important to go see the clinician to decide what is the regimen that's best for my kid, depending on their age and what symptoms they're having. 
Oh gosh. And I, we're doing the triad, the oral medication, the nasal spray and the eye drops for our son. And actually I really appreciate you always saying like, speak with your clinician because obviously every child is different and their reactions are different. Do parents, should they going to the pediatrician is going to be enough support or do they need to go also see an allergist? What are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. And how I look at it is if we're able to manage whatever seasonal allergies that they're having with this medications, and let's talk about non-medication, like air purifiers in the home versus humidifiers, purifying the air, meaning taking out those allergens. When we come back from inside, taking a bath every night, right? These are just things that we can do to remove allergens from our body and our environment. Keeping the windows closed in the car, right? In allergy season, obviously the windows open is such a nice thing when it's beautiful, but for someone suffering with allergies, that pollen, ragweed, whatever it is, can come in through the windows, right? Keeping doors closed in the house. So these are all non-medicated ways that we can help. So now if a family has done the non-medicated strategies, they've done medicated strategies and the child is still not feeling great, right? Meaning they're just so symptomatic that maybe even missing school or just the parent is like, wow, like I just can't get a handle of this. I highly recommend then seeing an allergist to determine, do we need to step up the medication or do we need to do allergy testing to confirm, okay, are they allergic to something in the home, dust mites, something else? Are they allergic to pollen or something more? And what is it? that we're allergic to, that we may need to be more mindful of. And sometimes in some cases, children who are not responding to medications or other interventions or have symptoms year round of seasonal allergy, it's like not seasonal, it's all year. Sometimes they qualify for injections, which are basically allergy injections that help their immune system not respond as much to these allergens. And so it's almost like a little allergen gets placed into your body. Your body learns that this is not a threat. It's okay. And this can actually be very beneficial for some children as well who are longtime sufferers dealing with this year round or not responding to medications. Oh man, Dr. Mona, that was so helpful. Thank you for diving into all of that because as a parent who is currently experiencing all of that, that's really helpful to know where we can turn and what's normal and what you can potentially expect if things are a little bit more severe than another child. So I thank you for that. And another thing you mentioned, Dr. Mona, bug bites. Oh my gosh, they are just another dreaded issue that we approach, you know, as we approach summer, I feel like everyone says, oh, the mosquito is like our state bird because it's in the summertime, you just get eaten alive. How do you recommend we prevent bug bites, Dr. Mona? And what is the best way to treat them also once you get them? I love it. And I, again, being in Florida, I am just very attuned to this issue because mosquitoes are all around Florida and I am very sensitive to the bites of a mosquito. I create huge flares. I always have ever since I was a young kid. Luckily, my husband and my son are not mosquito magnets, so we could all be in the same room and people probably listening to this know that this is the case. You can be in the same room and yet one person gets 20 bug bites, the other person and, or other people in the room don't get bit at all, or maybe if they get bit, they have a very small reaction. Everybody's different, similar to how everybody, some people have allergies, some people don't. I am one of those sensitive to bug bite people. So you asked two questions. One of them is prevention. One of them is how to treat. So in terms of prevention, there are a lot of different insect repellents. So we have obviously for insect repellents, there's DEET, 
There's picaridin. These are all FDA approved types. So deep picaridin. And then there's essential oils, which are eucalyptus or oil of lemon eucalyptus. So these are all just where the essential oils are coming from. So these are your three main types, all of which are safe for children. DEET and picaridin can be used for children two months and over. And then essential oils, the lemon oil of lemon eucalyptus, that can be used for children three and up. The EPA and the FDA have a great website that show all the different insect repellents and how to choose the best one for you. But my advice to all parents is most parents want to do things that are less medicated or less chemical, which I appreciate. I get that as a parent. So you can always start with something like parents swear like, oh, I want to use these wristbands. Data, you know, wristbands to repel insects. Unfortunately, there's not good data showing that they actually do anything. But if they work for your kid, I'm fine with it. But if it's not working, if it's not working, you have to go to something more because we want to prevent the insect bites if we can, the misery. Obviously, mosquitoes carry diseases. So we want to reduce that risk if we can. So my first tip is do what you feel is best. But if it's not working, don't be scared or shy of DEET or picaridin because they have been proven time and time again to be very effective in reducing, obviously, the chances of insect bites. And that's our goal. Now, for treatment, my favorite thing is it's called the bug bite thing, and it's a handy little gadget or tool that's under $10. You can get it any major store, but Amazon is a great place to get it if you want to get it or the bug bite thing website. I am a huge fan. So I'm actually a pediatrician mom. I'm on their medical advisory board. I'm the first member of their medical advisory board, and I chose to be on the medical advisory board because I am obsessed with this product. I am like blown away with how a less than $10 product can help alleviate the itch and irritation if I were to get a bug bite. Because I talked about prevention. Sometimes we still get bites, right? So I was looking for a solution to avoid that itch and irritation for treatment. I had been using steroid ointments twice a day on my bug bites, icing it. It was a whole production that sometimes even the bite would last two weeks of irritation. So how this works, and I want to explain how it works. First of all, we have to understand how and why we get that red local reaction. And I'm not sure, Nina, do you get bug bites a lot or are you prone to them? Yes. I feel like it's sugar water or something and they just gravitate towards me. (laughs) So you are like me. I feel the same thing. And one of the things that happens when we get bit by a mosquito is their saliva Obviously, when they bite us, their saliva is also coming into contact with our skin. So our body doesn't like the saliva of the mosquito. So it creates an immune response, similar to how an immune response would be created for allergies, right? Like a seasonal allergy. So histamine is part of that immune response. And histamine increases blood flow to the area. And with that comes inflammatory cells to help fight any sort of foreigner, right? Like this foreigner is saliva. So now we have this saliva that has microscopic amount of saliva that's causing this histamine response, which means redness, swelling. With that comes inflammatory cells to almost help treat the bug bite. But with it comes all those uncomfortable feelings, the itch, the scratch, all of that, because everything is also relaying signals to the nerves around the bite that causes us to just dig into that skin. And we know that the more we scratch, the more it repeats the cycle, right? So if you start digging into that bug bite, from personal experience, I know this too, you dig into it, you just can't stop. You're just like, oh my gosh. And then all of a sudden you see this huge welt because you've just 
created this itch scratch cycle of a bug bite. So what the bug bite thing does is that it's non-medicated and it's a suction tool. And it basically sucks up the saliva of the insect so that it can help alleviate that itch scratch response that we're dealing with because it's removing the irritant, which is the saliva. So how it works is pretty nifty. So it has a head on one side that you can exchange sides. So depending on the size of your bug bite, it's a bigger opening or a smaller opening. So we'll do the bigger opening. And then when you put it, just say you have a bug bite on the arm, you would put it down on your skin. And the beautiful thing about the bug bite thing is that it can also be used for children. So there's no age minimum. The only thing we ask is that it's not used on the face or the neck, or that's more sensitive skin. So just say you have a little bug bite on your little baby's arm. You would put it on their skin, put the handles down, and then you would lift up until you feel a little suction. So you can see that there's a little suction. For children, you go halfway. You don't go all the way up. For adults, you can go all the way up if you'd like. And you just hold it for 10 to 15 seconds, and you can count up, sing a song, whatever you'd wanna do. I'm not gonna do the full 10 to 15 seconds. And then you release the handle, back down. And then when you take it up, you're going to see a very small little ring, but it should not have severe irritation or anything. That means you pulled a little bit hard. And you can do that at the first sign of an insect bite. So when you start to feel that hive or that redness, you are going to use that bug bite thing and you can use it once. You can use it again in that first 12 hours. And from personal experience and also what I, you know, I talked to a lot of families who use it in Florida as well. You're going to feel less itch sensation because what it does is that it sucks up that saliva into this apparatus. And all you do is take off this head and you just wipe it either with an alcohol wipe or with warm water and soap, and you can reuse it again. So reusable, affordable tool that can help alleviate those bug bites and it's medication free and it's super affordable. And I love that it can be used for children as well. My son, like I said, doesn't get a lot of bites, but when he does, he now comes and brings his arm and he goes, mommy, mommy, suck it up, mommy. And so he like likes to watch it and it's great. It really helps alleviate. So we're not getting that risk of infection because of scratching, right? That can lead to, if they break the skin with dirty nails, that can lead to infection or just the misery that I know you experience as well from being a bug bite sufferer, if you will. Oh my goodness. Thank you for giving us that demonstration and full explanation of what we can do to prevent and treat, especially for our little ones, because they don't want to listen when we say, don't itch, don't scratch. Um, (laughs) Yes, I agree with that. Like they, it's really hard to also stay on top of medication sometimes. Like just say you didn't have this thing. Steroid ointments were usually the mainstay, icing it. And this can really again, be a tool in your tool belt, if you will. It is actually a tool. And we have one in literally every room of our house. I have it in all my purses, like a a backpack that I take when we go outside. It is like that one thing that I'm like, okay, keys, phone, bug bite thing, especially being a Florida family and me being so prone to it. It's such a great thing. And again, it's small, it's affordable, and it really can help. So I love talking about it. It's a great product. Thank you for that awesome tip. Oh, we so appreciate it. And I know we mentioned this briefly, eczema flare-ups, oh my goodness, are so common during the warmer weather months. How do you recommend parents treat and alleviate some of the symptoms associated with eczema? 
Yeah. And it's so interesting, similar to all things that we've discussed already. Every child is so unique. So I have some children who move to Florida and their eczema gets better because of the humidity. And then I have some children who are here and it's worse in the humidity. So it's so hard to know what's going to be the trigger for various children. So the key for any eczema flare up, whether it's in warmer weather, cooler weather, is to first understand the triggers for that child. Triggers could be things like the pajamas that we're wearing. Are we wearing bamboo, cotton, or are we wearing like polyester or more rough fabrics? We want to lean on bamboo or cotton, something that's more breathable. The detergents we use, so we want to use something that's more hypoallergenic, no fragrances involved. We want to limit fabric softener. So these are another things that we're looking at besides the clothes that we wear, detergents, perfumes. Sometimes, you know, grandma having a really strong perfume on her, she holds baby and all of a sudden baby flares up. Everybody's a little different. So the first key is to look at triggers for that child. So then we can avoid those triggers and hopefully help their eczema. If warm weather is one of your triggers, one of the other keys to stay on top of your eczema is to really make sure that you are using emollients to the skin. And emollients are ointments and lotions that help keep moisture in the skin and irritants out. Irritant being humid weather, irritant being the allergens that can come with humid weather. So the thought is that maybe children who are responding and reacting more in humid weather in the warm months, maybe there's some allergens in the environment that are triggering their eczema. So we want to keep the skin protected, almost creating a defense for the skin to say, I got this, please don't bother me. And so the best way we do that is using things like Aquaphor, Vaseline, or any greasy ointment. That is my hope for all eczema families that your child should be feeling very moisturized, like the, especially those babies. I want them greasy, greasy, greasy. And I know it may not feel good, but it's really important for their skin because eczema children are more prone to losing moisture from the skin. So we want to help them by keeping that moisture in so that they're not getting dry because then that will cause the scratching and itching, similar to what we talked about with bug bites, that cycle that just can't be broken. And so you may find that you have to do this multiple times a day. It's not just like you put it on in the morning and it's all done. Depending on your child's skin type, you may have to apply it a few times a day. The rule is when you're noticing it dry, you want to put this on. And the key here also is when your child has eczema, you want to do good skincare even when it's a good day, not just when they have flare-ups, not when it's red. Our goal is that we want to do this on a regular basis so that it doesn't get to that point where it's super red, super irritated, they're starting to dig at it, because then at that level, you may need to speak to your clinician about what is going to be in my eczema action plan for things like topical steroids, or maybe the National Eczema Association sometimes talks about bleach bats if a child is more prone to getting infections with eczema. These are all things that have to be cleared with the clinician, but it depends on how severe the eczema is and what's happening with that eczema for that child. Very helpful. As a parent who has a little one with terrible eczema, I completely relate to this topic. And the only problem I have is my daughter's like, no lotion, no lotion. She hates it when I lather her up. And I'm like, but baby, you need it. (laughs) That's my only one thing. Yeah, I would say for that, you know, I get it. My son with sunscreen was the same way and offer some control, um, sometimes even getting like a brush 
like so that they feel like they're putting on makeup, you know, like, hey, let's put it on this brush and then they can put it like on themselves. So it's like some sort of playful control because you're right, it has to happen. Obviously, it's hard to pin. You don't want to get into this, the power struggle of having to pin them down and do this, but give them some control, give them some option, give them some distraction of something to hold while you're doing the ointments, like whether it's like a toy. Hey, which toy do you want to hold while we put this on? But sometimes like if it's a lotion, putting it on like the tip of a brush and letting them play with it a little bit can sometimes help alleviate that no, no, no phase and bring them in just a little bit to be cooperative. Oh, that's an awesome tip. I'm going to have to try that brush tip next time for sure. (laughs) And Dr. Mona, the sun, oh my goodness, it is coming out already and it can be intense during the spring and summer months. And remembering sunscreen is very important for our little ones. What is your advice to parents when it comes to sun protection? Yeah. So with sun protection, we also have to respect that there are certain times of the day that are more unsafe. I'm going to put that in quotes than others. It doesn't mean that you have to barricade yourself inside. It just means being more cognizant that between 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. in the Northern Hemisphere. So if our listeners are in the United States, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. is peak sun time. That is when the sun is overhead. The UV rays are the strongest. So when you're going out anytime, but especially during peak times. If your child is under six months of age, I prefer keeping them out of direct sun if possible. So you can go on walks with them. You can go, you know, if you like on strolls, but you don't want to go to like a there was an air show recently in Fort Lauderdale. You don't want to take them to an air show where there's sun beaming down for hours and hours without any shade. If you're going to be taking them out, we want to make sure that they are sun protected and have good shade coverage for the entire time to protect their sensitive skin. Over six months of age still applies that we don't want them to be in direct sun to protect their skin, but we can use sunscreen after this point, right? There are baby sunscreens. Mineral sunscreens are recommended for babies. There's mineral and chemical. I put that in quotes as well. Mineral sunscreens are the type of sunscreens that stay on the surface of the skin, so they can kind of sometimes leave that white cast that many parents may be familiar with. But this is something that we can use over the age of six months, applying it before we go outside, reapplying it every few hours or when they get wet based on what's on the packaging. And then you're rubbing it into the scalp, you're rubbing it into the back of the ears, the neck, the nose, the face, the body, any obviously exposed skin area. And then choosing sun safe clothes if you're going to be outside like at the beach for a long time. Sun safe clothes are usually marketed as such that they block out UV rays from the material. They're usually more like stretchy synthetic material, like rash guards, like long rash guards that they'll wear at the at the pool so that they're not getting exposed to the sun and then still using sunscreen. And then when you are looking for a sunscreen, you want to make sure that you're looking for something with broad spectrum coverage. This basically means that it covers for UVA, UVB rays. The SPF can be anywhere from 30 to 50. Anything over that is just marketing and it doesn't really matter. And water resistant, obviously, because if you're going to be outside, there's a chance that they're going to sweat. There's a chance that they're going to be at the pool or beach. So we want to have that as well. And I like ingredients like zinc oxide or titanium dioxide. These are very common in mineral or physical sunscreens, like I mentioned earlier. And if for any reason you can't find a mineral sunscreen, your child is older, I don't want parents to feel like, oh my gosh, like I'm not using a mineral sunscreen, I damaged my kid. It's nothing like that. It's more so that it's a preferred sunscreen. It doesn't mean that the alternative is this awful thing. So please, using a sunscreen is better than nothing. 
But if you can find a mineral sunscreen, this is what's kind of recommended for children, given that it stays on the surface of the skin, the ingredients in it as well. But I have used non-mineral sunscreen for my son too, if we're out and I forgot it without any hesitation. And when using sunscreen, I tend to also prefer lotions versus spray. If you're going to use spray, you have to make sure you're outside, but there is a risk of inhalation of that. The lotion also gets better coverage. So I have preferences on that. But again, the rule here is we want to make sure that we are using it, we're reapplying it. And even on a cloudy day, when we think that the sun isn't out, the UV rays are still able to come through on cloudy days. So if you're planning on being outside, playing in the park or going to the beach or a barbecue, definitely bring your sunscreen and your sun protection, shaded area, umbrella. Sun protection is the new healthy way to stay safe. I know growing up, I um, would just bask in the sun in Southern California. And now I've realized obviously how sun is healthy for us, but it's also important that we provide some safety to prevent against, you know, melanoma, skin damage, all of that stuff. And that starts in early childhood with what we're talking about here today. Absolutely. Oh, this is so wonderful and really helpful info. And you did mention water, people going to, you know, the pool and the beach and the lake and all of that during the summertime, which is so true. And water safety is just another incredibly important issue that we should talk about. Dr. Mona, what should parents know when it comes to water safety? Yeah. So, you know, water safety is one of those big things. Wherever you are in this world, it is so important that we're respectful of the joy of water, but also the harm it can cause for our young children, especially children under four years of age. It is the leading cause of unintentional death for one to four-year-olds, so drowning accidents, okay? Each year, nearly 300 children under the age of five drown in swimming pools, and that is a lot. I see a lot of it in Florida because everyone, a lot of people have swimming pools, but even if you're not around a pool, you may find yourself around a pool on a vacation going to visit a family member who has one. So it's really important to remember that wherever you're staying, just say you are visiting an Airbnb or some rental, it's important that if you have a small child that you have a fence around the pool. So fences should be a minimum of four feet high. However, five feet or above is even better. So it's important to remember that we want to have a fence around the pool. There's nothing that the child can put next to the fence to climb over. So like a stool or anything like that. Door alarms on the back doors are important, but fences are extremely important as well. These are, again, approved for pools, not just a fence that you put up. You'd have to call someone to get them put up. And I'm sure you may have seen that. It's also important to be extremely vigilant. I will say that one of the biggest situations I see drownings happen is during parties or where there's a lot of people because you're distracted. So just say there was a pool party, everyone comes back inside. That child is like, oh, I forgot my toy in the pool. And they sneak out the back door. And those sneak outs of the back door when everyone is distracted is really those split second things that happen where the child ends up in the pool unattended. And it's really hard. I've just talked to so many families who have dealt with this and it is really, really hard, but it is preventable with being super vigilant about what's happening. Fences, not relying solely on door alarms. We really, if there's a pool around, a body of water around, whether it's a lake, a swimming pool, you know, you're at the beach, we need to have a guardian one-on-one eyes on that child. And that may be hard to do. Just say you're a a dad or a mom taking your three children to the beach. Understand, you know, obviously if you have a more avid swimmer, you need to respect the water and say, okay, it's me one on three. 
I'm going to have my child here. I'm going to go with my children to the waterside. I'm not going to have any distraction. So no cell phones, nothing else. My role here is being a water watcher. I need to make sure that my kids stay safe. And it's a really important thing. One last strategy I have is if you're at a swimming pool, make sure you designate a water watcher if there's not a lifeguard. So just say you're at a family friend party and there is a pool party. I want someone to make sure that someone who's not drinking, someone who's not on their cell phone is the designated water watcher and what that person will do. And their job is to look at the pool and make sure that they're counting heads, meaning they are counting. If there's five kids in the water, they are looking and scanning for five heads every so often, because what can happen is if kids are playing, in a corner, splashing, 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 one child can go under. You're not really counting heads. You're just counting, oh, there seems to be okay. You want to make sure you're seeing every child's head and saying, okay, there are five kids in this pool. I can visually see five heads right now. Everyone is above water and no one's underwater drowning. And that's how we can help prevent these things from happening. And I know sometimes parents hear about all this drowning talk and they get a little scared or they get a little bit like, oh, this is such fear. But As someone who is a mother and someone who practices in Florida, which sees a high number of drownings, I know how preventable they are and I know the tragedy that can happen. And I I know there are little steps that we can do to just make sure that we are assuring safety, but we can still have fun. This doesn't mean that you can't go around pools or go to the beach or go to a, a public swimming pool, but it's just being vigilant so that we can protect our children from these unintentional tragedies. Absolutely. And these are really, really great tips for all of us to keep in mind as we approach the time of school getting out and everyone being by the pool and that. So thank you for sharing these wonderful tips. Oh my goodness. And Dr. Mona, are there any other common viruses or health concerns that you see arise during the summer that we haven't covered? Yeah, sometimes we do see some viruses that like the more warm months. A lot of this could be just common cold viruses that typically are in the fall and winter or in spring, but they tend to come around summer. I will say that summer tends to be a less frequent virus time than the other months. People are outdoors more. They're not congregated indoors, which can spread viruses. Hand, foot, and mouth is a virus that we can see commonly during the spring and summer, but it's usually caused by a virus and it can cause fever, sores in the mouth, around the mouth, on the hands, on the feet, sometimes for younger children in the diaper area, but it is a virus. So it goes away on its own. But if your child's not drinking or if they seem very uncomfortable, then it's a good idea to seek medical attention. For sure. Oh my goodness. And do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with Dr. Mona? Yeah, I think one of the big things, you know, whenever I talk about these health anticipation for a season, right, we're talking about spring and summer, a lot of it may seem like a lot of information of, okay, I have to do this and I got to do this. Take each category that we talked about with like, okay, so sun safety, I'm going to handle this bug bite. I got this. Remember that this is all for the benefit of our kids and a big picture as well. Whenever you're feeling overwhelmed, I want to remind you that It's not a great idea to go online and Google because that can actually lead to more overwhelm. So if you're overwhelmed, I want you to find information where you feel trusted information is coming from. So whether it's a clinician, whether it's someone that you trust, sometimes when we go on mom groups or parent groups, that can actually add to our anxiety because everyone's talking about all these scary things or things that they lack the nuance for. So my advice is if you're feeling like a crappy parent, or you're feeling like overwhelmed by information, you need to shut down the source of where you're getting that information and go to places that don't 
freak you out. Okay. It's really important to do that. I created my platform, Pete's Dog Talk, because I have talked to so many moms, especially in my office, who were so stressed about all that over information. Oh my gosh. Well, my child went underwater for two seconds and is now coughing. He's going to have a pneumonia. I'm like, well, no, not necessarily. Like people will share the most scary things on social media and it's lacking so much nuance because they're not clinicians, you know? So it's so important to remember that I'm going to take this information Remember that it's a one situation, talk to my clinician about it. And that is my role with my platform is that I want to help people feel a lot less anxious about parenting and a lot more informed and feel it in like a relatable way that's uh, tangible and that they can implement today. So that's my hope. Oh, gosh. And we're so grateful for that, Dr. Mona. And for our listeners who haven't heard our last episode with you, can you remind our listeners where they can find you? Yes. The best place to go is pedsdoctalk.com, P-E-D-S-D-O-C-T-A-L-K. So pedsdoctalk.com. I have a YouTube channel. I have a podcast. I have digital e-courses for anywhere from birth to four years of age. And then of course, my Instagram handle, pedsdoctalk or TikTok is where you can connect, build community with my amazing followers. And that's where I am as well. So a lot of different places to stay in touch. We love it. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Dr. Mona, for your time and for sharing your knowledge and advice with all of us. It's always a wonderful time coming on and chatting with you. And I'm so happy I could do that today. Oh, same here. I feel the exact same way. Oh gosh. And for our listeners out there to learn more about Dr. Mona, as she said, you can visit her at pedsdoctot.com and on Instagram or TikTok at pedsdoctot. Our team will be posting today's episode on our Baby Chick Facebook page. So if you have any questions or comments about our discussion, please share them with us in the comment section. And as always, if you haven't already, please subscribe to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us an honest review. Cheers to a healthy and happy spring and summer. 